Matthew chapter 7. We return to <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be finishing up here within the next couple of weeks. And here in these last couple of weeks, we're going to see Jesus kind of shifting his attention from, okay, here's teaching, here's what the kingdom of God looks like, here's what we need to be, to now he's establishing the authority behind everything that he's saying. And we're going to be looking at today, starting in verse uh, 13, he's going to start diving into this discourse throughout, the, throughout verse 27. We're not going to cover all these verses today, but he's going to be talking about how he is reliable. The things that he is saying is reliable. And to take heed, to be careful to follow the things that he's been saying. Don't follow the things that everybody else is saying. Follow the things that he is saying. He is the authority on these matters. Follow him. And this is what he's going to be discussing throughout the end of the sermon here. <clears throat> And before we pray, I'd like to read this passage, starting in verse 13. We're going to be going through verse 20 today. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are a few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Thank you, God, for caring about us and caring that we know the way. Thank you that you have not, though you had the right to, you have not led us stay stuck in our depravity, but you have shown us the way out. You have shown us the way of salvation. You have shown us the way of your kingdom. And you care <clears throat> that we are not led astray. You, with the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior, you are warning us today to be careful, to be aware of the teachers that are around us, to observe their teaching and their lifestyle, to see whether they be from you or whether they be not from you, because you, God, care about us, and you care that we walk the path that Christ has trod as our forerunner, our guide, our leader, to walk in the ways of the everlasting God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the eyes of discernment as we live this life, filled with many words from many different people who are trying to guide us and direct us, giving us their wisdom, giving us their knowledge and their understanding. Lord, give us a spirit of discernment to know whether these are from you or not from you. I pray that your spirit would give us that wisdom and give us that discernment so that we may not be deceived. Thank you first and foremost for all of the love that you give to us. Thank you for caring enough to inform us of these things and to not just leave us to try to figure this all out on our own 
as though it would have been possible unless you had given us a clear direction of your ways. And open the eyes of your elect so that we might see it and take it. Your great gift by your grace. Let us not be uplifted in our own thoughts to think that we are smart enough to find this way. That we are smart enough to discern the scriptures on our own. <coughs> Let us not be carnal in our thoughts. Let us be spiritual, relying on your grace to show us blind people the way to see it and to choose it. Thank you for giving us the will and the power to work according to your good pleasure by your grace, not by our own wisdom. Give us your wisdom today, Lord, as we try to discern your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's look here first at verses 13 and 14. He says, our Lord Jesus guides us. After preaching this long sermon with many practical elements, he guides us. <clears throat> He's kind of all-encompassing everything that he said. He's giving us this direction. He's giving us a, a rule of thumb to live by. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So now, he's giving us, again, a rule of thumb. How to know if you are on the way to destruction. Don't you want to know? Would you not want to know if you were on the way to life or on the way to death? The way to being built up or the way to being destroyed? Don't you want to know? Jesus is helping us know with this general rule of thumb. Enter by the narrow gate. He says, the gate that you need to enter by is narrow. But he'll get to that, he'll broaden that a little bit. No pun intended. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Now, if we want to start getting practical right from the get-go, he's saying, there are many who go in by this gate that leads to destruction. So if you want to know, am I going the way of destruction? Well, maybe you should look and see, am I doing what everybody else is doing? Am I believing what's easy to believe? Am I only receiving what's easy to digest? Because that's the stuff that everybody else is doing, right? The stuff that's pleasing, the stuff that's easy, the stuff that takes minimal sacrifice, minimal effort, minimal devotion, minimal change. The way that lets me kind of do whatever I want while kind of holding to this creedal philosophy of religiosity. <clears throat> I live my life the way I want. I make the choices that I want to make. I kind of take what I want, dismiss what I don't want, kind of go home. I'm always happy. I never let myself grow discouraged by God's word. I'm n I never allow myself to be convicted into some serious change or sacrifice. This is the broad way that leads to destruction. Regardless of whatever creeds or confessions we might hold to. There are many in the last day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many marvelous things in your name? I mean, just think about that statement. Can we say we have done many marvelous things in the name of Jesus Christ? I have a hard time saying that. But there are many that the Lord's word says that we'll say that and we'll be able to say that in honesty. And God will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Doubtless there are many even more who will come and say, well, I, I believe the right stuff. I went to church. I, you know, I 
held to the confession that my church kind of put forth on their website. That was a pretty good person. And God will dismiss them, saying, I never knew you. Because they lived their life at relative ease. They never entered by the narrow gate. They continued their entire life just walking down this wide, broad path that everybody else was walking down. There was no difference, really, that stood out in that person than pretty much the rest of society. I mean, think that that doesn't mean you have to be a murderer. I mean, how many murderers do you know? Is that where everybody is that what everybody's doing? <clears throat> is everybody a murderer? Is everybody, you know, cheating on their spouse? A lot of people are. But that's not commonplace society necessarily. No, the broad way, the wide way is that it's the life that everybody's living. And we just kind of fold right into that. The wide, broad way, the gate that leads to destruction. You don't stand out necessarily, because if you stood out, well then that's kind of contrary to the broad, wide way that leads to destruction that everybody's going in. You just kind of fold into it. You're not necessarily have, you don't necessarily have to stand out as this desperately wicked person compared to the rest of society. <clears throat> You're just doing the same things that everybody else is doing. Living the same life that everybody else is living. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here, but look at verse 14. He says, Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. You want to know that you're on the way to life. Well, one rule of thumb is there aren't that many people who have found it. If you are believing the same thing that everybody else is believing, chances are you haven't found it. Chances are you don't know the way. Because mass society does not know the way. According to Jesus, mass society is not on the way to life. Pop Christianity is not the way to life. Because if it were, Jesus would be wrong. He says, few, there are few who find it, the way to life. Now that is kind of discouraging. We don't want to hear that. But isn't it God himself who said, it is not, he is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance? God is not pleased that there are few who find it. <coughs> It's not good that we would be pleased or just indifferent that there are few who find this way to life. But look at how Jesus describes this way to life. Narrow is the gate. Narrow. It's very small. There's not a whole lot of room for diversity as far as what's required to walk this, go through this gate into life. But then here's the part that may be a little bit more difficult for us to, under, to, to digest. And he says, difficult is the way that leads to life. Isn't that contrary to the life that we all try to shape for ourselves? Is not the way of the American life, the American dream, to establish this easy road where we get to just kind of live our life in prosperous ease, where everything's kind of taken care of for us, we don't have any worries or anxieties to deal with, I mean, that's really a fantasy, really. But that's kind of what we want. That's what we're all looking for. That choice life of relative ease where nothing's really that difficult. <clears throat> but Jesus is saying that the way to life, the way is difficult. Not just the moment of conversion okay yeah sometimes that moment of conversion is difficult for some of us but he's saying the way the path when you're walking down the path that is difficult when you're getting there when you're walking the road to salvation that's difficult 
Have you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hand if you've read the book or listened to the book or something like that. Is that easy? Bunyan wrote that as a description of what the life of the believer looks like. The inner turmoil, the external turmoil. There are times of refreshment along the way. It's not that every single day of your life is difficult. Because the Lord knows we cannot... We in our human flesh cannot manage constant, incessant hardship. There are times of refreshing, but the way is difficult. Does that describe our life before Christ? Or let's ask some of these questions to ourselves. Are we at relative ease? Things are pretty simple for us. It's not difficult to live the Christianity that I'm living. I don't really run into a whole lot of hardships as far as living this life for God's kingdom is concerned. That's not the way to life, according to Jesus. That's not the way to life. I mean, this is not me. I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Difficult is the way. Do we live our life at relative ease? Or do we, is it the, the type of Christianity that we're living out, is it actually difficult? Does it require much sacrifice? Does it, make, does it include a lot of hard, self-emptying decisions? Or is our manner of living pretty similar to that of the average non-Christian? You know, we're the good neighbor, we try to be a good citizen, we kind of help out where we can, get involved, go to church. <clears throat> Even non-Christians will go to church. Is our life filled with chasing after ambitions and goals that are not really dependent on the grace of God? They really have very little, we have very little intentionality for the kingdom of God. We're just living our life, hoping to retire someday so that we can live at relative ease. If those of you who are retired, does that really happen for you? <laughs> Is life easy now <laughs> because you're retired? But are we chasing after a type of life or goals that really have nothing to do with God's kingdom, God's priorities? Or are we just kind of chasing after this American dream where I just need to get some more, I need to establish my, my uh, foundation in this world, build my own kingdom, have this nice house that's paid off, that's well-maintained, um, a life that's financially productive, leave something for my kids when I pass, I mean, that's what everybody else is doing. Those, those are the goals that everybody else has. Are we different? Do we stand out? Are we making decisions that actually are, stand out from the average citizen of the United States? Do we find, just thinking about our life, do we find that we rarely, if ever, make choices concerning the kingdom of God that involve the emptying of both the flesh and the will for the sake of following the Father's will. I mean, this is perhaps one of the, the most important questions that we need to ask ourselves. Do we find that we do, or rarely ever do, make decisions that cause us to empty our own will out? Just like Jesus did. To follow the kingdom of God. To sacrifice the flesh. To sacrifice things that are important to us. Sacrifice things that we think that are, val are valuable. Things that we worked hard for. Do we, do we ever make choices that empty ourselves of these things? Or empty ourselves of our own will? Remember how the Bible says, submit to one another in love? Now, this is not just about husbands and wives. This is about the assembly. 
Do we ever submit to one another in love because we love the assembly, because we love the person here that we're sitting next to? Do we set aside, do we gladly, not begrudgingly, set aside our own will for the sake of peace, unity, and the fact that we love this assembly and we do not want to cause division and strife in it? Or do we, is our first and foremost impulse to rise up, go get my will done, my will be done in this church as it is in my house. And do we take that attitude into our family, into our jobs? Or are we a Christian everywhere where we, are, we set aside our will for the good of the others? In fact, I direct my will so that the good of others is accomplished, so that there can be flourishing and nourishing in the lives of the people around me. That's how our life should operate. And that's hard. Man is naturally predisposed to self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, self-preservation. Have, has that been overcome? Self-preservation, self-fulfillment, self-will. Has that been overcome by the blood of the cross? by the transformation of the Spirit, and turned into something Christ-like, where it's no longer me setting out to see my will be done, but to see that God's will is done, and that the people are benefited. The people around me are benefited. Have I seen that transformation in my life? I mean, just, we just, we're just coming out of the Christmas season. The very first time we see Jesus entering the scene as a baby, that very act is Jesus setting aside his throne that he deserved, leaving behind his eternal kingdom so that he can become and be part of man's corrupt kingdom. He knew he was God. He knew he didn't deserve this. He knew we deserved this. But he came and he emptied himself of all of his own rights so that he could give us eternal life. When was the last time you gave up one of your rights for the good of another? We're all about rights as a nation. That's my right. You don't have the right. When was the last time I willfully gave up a right that I have for somebody else? Isn't that also the nature of forgiveness? Jesus dives into the nature of forgiveness many times as a necessary part of the Christian life. If you cannot forgive, then you are not a follower of Christ, the Bible talks about. Forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things you can ever do. When you have experienced real hurt, real legitimate offense, To forgive is not to just say that it's okay. That's not forgiveness because it wasn't okay. What happened? The offense that was done against you. The harm that was performed against you. It is hard to forgive, to truly forgive. If it was easy, then it probably wasn't forgiveness. It's probably just brushing it under the rug so you don't have to think about the pain. But forgiveness is... Emptying yourself of yourself. Forgiveness is one of the ultimate forms of self-emptying. That's what God does every time he forgives you. There's a judgment that stands out against you. That God is not causing you to pay for. A legitimate judgment. Legitimate sin. Legitimate wrongdoing. Yet the Lord forgives even though he rightfully deserves for there to be payment for that. <clears throat> but he doesn't cause you to pay it. Jesus Christ paid it. See, all of this is tied to the gospel. All of this is tied to the gospel. If we are walking like Christ walked, this self-emptying is probably one of the most difficult things we will ever have to experience in this life. He says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. 
We're going to have sermons on forgiveness later, but scriptures make it clear, if you're not a forgiver, then you are not a Christian. Because forgiveness is like one of the first primary representations of Jesus Christ that we can ever experience in our life. From day one in our relationship with God, there's forgiveness there. So our lives ought to be saturated with forgiveness. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So here we have the rules of thumb that you can try to remember here, write down in your notes. The way of destruction is the way that most people are going. And it's easy. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to understand. It's not really that hard to live. That doesn't mean that stuff doesn't happen. Unsafe people foreclose on houses and have loved ones pass away. That's not what he's talking about, okay? Talking about something far more spiritual, spiritually intimate. It has to do with the inner self. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. The way of destruction is easy, and lots of people are doing it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So the way to life is difficult, and there are not that many people walking that path. So that makes it simple, right? We could expand that, we could keep expanding that. But the way of life is difficult, and there aren't that many people doing it. So if you find yourself alone sometimes, that's probably a good thing. Jesus says, count it all joy when people revile you. Because chances are that means you're walking the right path. Because there aren't that many people who approve of that path. And it's hard. And that's part of the reason why there aren't that many people walking that path, because it's hard. And because it's not discernible by human wisdom. But we don't choose the hard path. We don't, choose, we don't naturally choose the occupation that's incredibly difficult with very little pay. <laughs> Usually it's those jobs that are incredibly difficult that come with lots of pay, because there aren't that many people who will choose that job unless there's lots of reward that comes with it. So naturally, just the way the people work, people don't choose the hard things unless there's great reward. In a way, that's still the path we're walking, isn't it? We don't get temporal reward. We're going to talk about this as part of the conversation here. I'm not just rambling. People want temporal reward, reward in this life. We want to see, I do this, I get a payout. But we walk this narrow road. We will receive eternal reward. Eternal reward. That's our hope. We set our hope on the eternity, on the love of Jesus that brings us in, that includes us in the inheritance of, of eternity, the kingdom of God. We have that in front of us, but it's eternal hope, not temporal hope. And that kind of launches us here into verse 15 where we're going to start talking about false prophets. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So now he's talking about false prophets and how to discern a false prophet. And Jesus here is focusing on what this person produces in their life. Whether they are good or whether they are evil. And he's saying beware of false prophets. And the word for beware could really be translated be aware. Okay, open your eyes. Look out. Be on the watch. Because there are false prophets all around, and sometimes they're hard to discern. 
Because there are a great many people who talk a good talk. They say pleasant words. I mean, if a person was a false prophet, they were preaching falsehood, and it was clear that it was false, how in the world are they going to get a following? If it's clear that what they're telling you is false. Everybody knows it. Four plus four is ten. Wait, that's obviously not right. Right, Kirk? Nine. Nine. Right? If it's obviously false, then nobody's going to follow that person. So a false prophet is not somebody who's saying stuff that's obviously false. There's always a basis upon which they're saying what they're saying. Have you ever talked with um, somebody from a cult? Raise your hand if you've talked with a cult member and they've tried to proselytize you. Don't they have some good reasoning behind a lot of the stuff they say? It's kind of hard to argue with them sometimes because they know their stuff. And what they're saying is logical, but it's false, even though it kind of makes sense from their perspective. And we're not going to get into that. Maybe we'll do a lesson on the cults one day. But why in the world are there all these religions in the world if obviously they're all false? Well, everything has a basis on which it's built. There's something in there that makes it seem true. Because if there wasn't, nobody would follow it. That's why many are deceived. He says, be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravenous wolves. Okay, so they put on this facade of truth and beauty. What they're saying, oh, that's amazing. It's fantastic. You are such a good speaker. The things that you're saying, just they just vibe with me. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Inwardly. The stuff that's not perceptible to the naked eye. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. But the inward nature of a wolf will come out, right? Wolves are actually pretty beautiful creatures until you're seeing it devouring a young helpless animal, right? I think they're pretty magnificent looking creatures. At least the well-fed one. <laughs> but once you see it coming at you, it's not so magnificent anymore. Now you want nothing to do with it. Inwardly, these false prophets are ravenous wolves. You will know them. Jesus is giving you another rule of thumb. You will know them by their fruits. And he gives these illustrations, which don't take a whole lot of explanation, so I'm not going to dwell on them. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's not the nature of the thistle bush to produce figs. We, have, we actually have a fig tree in our house. Uh, Kristen just bought one. Um, it's pretty beautiful. It's a humongous leaves. Um, it's pretty small right now, but they're supposed to get to be, be about nine feet. And they're pretty, they're very pretty bushes. But there's no thistles on that bush or tree or whatever it is. It looks like a bush right now. Maybe it's technically a tree. But there's no thorns on it, regardless of whether it's a bush or a tree. And you don't get a grapevine. doesn't grow thorns. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. If the inward nature of a man is wicked, dark, ravenous, that will come out. I mean, I've seen, just in the past couple of years, there have been a lot of, of uh, well-known figures in the United States, it, you know, pastors of sorts, that have fallen, that have been cast out of their churches. And, and quite frankly, I, don't, I wouldn't even consider all of them to be necessarily false teachers, um, but things like... Things like um, just different forms of carnality, whether it's fornication, different forms of pride and arrogance, 
These things surface eventually over years. These people that have been following have been pastors for decades. And now these things are starting to surface. And doubtless, many of you have watched the television and seen some of these false teachers on the television. But they're not necessarily well known for their fornication, for murder. Perhaps we accuse them of greed, self-ambition, and perhaps it's true. And I'm not going to start spouting names lest I do accidentally trample on the name of somebody who's truly the Lord's elect. I know some people are very big on naming names, and there might be some credit to that. I try to be a little bit more careful because I know myself, and I know that somebody can still be a legitimate preacher for the truth and still struggle with temptation. So I'm not going to say just because somebody sins that they're a false teacher. And we need to be careful about that too. And I want to warn you also not to be hasty to consider somebody a false teacher just because they did something wrong or said something wrong. So when we come into this, let's be humble about this, okay? Jesus has every right to say these things because he's God and he is the basis of truth. That's the point he's trying to make throughout the rest of this chapter is he is the basis of truth. You and I are not the basis of truth. He is. And the people who are like Jesus in general can be trusted. If you can't trust a person with the gospel, then you should not be listening to what they have to say. But we must be careful because there are many people who have fallen to sin and to temptation, but that does not illegitimize everything they've ever said or ever done because people do struggle. People do still sin. Do you still sin? Have you, do you still fall to temptation sometimes? I think the answer to that for all of us is yes, even though we have overcome much by the grace of God, by the sanctification of the Spirit. But we must not, just because we don't agree with something that somebody says or did, doesn't mean that they are necessarily a false teacher. So we must be, learn to distinguish between somebody who is, let, now let's start talking about doctrine, somebody who may be mistaken and someone who's a legitimate false teacher. Because then we also need to humble ourselves. Are you right about every? Raise your hand if you are right about everything. <laughs> We almost had a hand. <laughs> Wait, nobody else is raising their hand. <laughs> now tell me something that you're wrong about. What are you, Roger, what are you wrong about? <laughs> right? Rich, what are you wrong about? Now, if we thought we were wrong. Yeah, I'm not. Right, right, right. I'm not asking Carrie what Rich is thought wrong about. <laughs> we don't, we, we, we want to get out of here at some point. <laughs> but if we knew we were wrong about something, we would not believe that anymore, right? If we knew we were wrong about something, we wouldn't believe it because we knew we were wrong, so we need to change our mind. We don't, we, we don't purposefully believe wrong things. The Methodists don't purposefully believe something that we don't, that, that's wrong. The Catholics don't purposefully believe something that's wrong. They believe it's right. Just like we. We don't purposefully believe wrong things. We think we're right about this stuff. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe it. So just because we think somebody might be wrong doesn't necessarily mean they're a false teacher. A false teacher is somebody who's teaching something for selfish gain. They know it's wrong, but they know they can gain by it. They're using you through their teaching. They're using you to gain something. This is more along the nature of a false teacher. And we need to look at some passages here just to see this in the scriptures. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's just start in verse, verse 3. Paul is training Timothy. He's been teaching him practical advice for ministry things that he needs to teach, things that are true, that he needs to make sure his people are taught 
And Paul is now teaching Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And without food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he goes on, telling him to be blameless. But he describes these false teachers here as people who, you know, he, okay, so they have all these problems, and he, he wraps it up with, um, they're destitute of the truth, okay, so they're teaching falsehood, and they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. These are the people that we're not supposed to follow. These are the people that we're not supposed to associate ourselves with as their followers or comrades in the faith. Because one, they're not holding to the truth. And two, the, the, fact, the basis upon which they can compromise the truth is because they think that compromising the truth will be a greater gain for them because they have their minds set on earthly things. So here we see the nature of a false teacher as somebody who is willing to abandon what's true so that they can draw more of a crowd who will give them more money and they can satisfy themselves with earthly pleasures. They have their minds set on earthly things. They have been overcome by the temptations of greediness and covetousness. And they're using their greed and their covetousness to now determine what they're going to say and what they're not going to say. Well, if I, say, if I teach this, people, people won't follow me anymore. They won't give me their money. But if I harp on this, people will give me their money. People will follow me. People will love me because I'm tickling their ears. I'm saying what they want to say. Paul is saying, abstain from these people. Get away from these people. You, he's teaching, remember, he's teaching Timothy, a teacher, to be a true teacher, a good teacher, a teacher after Christ, after truth. He says, flee those things. Flee the temptations for earthly things. Flee the temptation to alter the truth for your own gain. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Hold on to eternal life. A teacher who is following after those things is a teacher after, the, after Christ. Can they be mistaken and do these things? Sure, we're all mistaken about stuff. None of us is perfect in our understanding of all scripture. We would be, there would be something wrong with us if we thought we were. Even though I'm not going to point out, yeah, I'm wrong about this. Because if I knew I was wrong, I wouldn't believe it. But I do understand that I'm, I am still limited. So I understand that I'm probably wrong about some things, a lot of things. But that doesn't mean I'm a false teacher. It doesn't mean that I can't pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. It doesn't mean I can't fight the good fight of faith. It doesn't mean I'm not going to lay hold on eternal life. It just means I'm a man. Temporal man. Feudal man. That's why you're not supposed to build your foundation on what I say. You're supposed to build your foundation on the rock, which is Christ. You're supposed to build the building with him being the chief cornerstone, not the teachings of some man. Because Christ is, the, Christ is the firm foundation. What he has shown us in the word, now this is true. I'm just giving you my interpretation of it. 
my interpretation can be wrong. Just like our neighboring churches, their interpretation can be wrong. Or it could be right. I'm not trying to get you to question everything that you've believed. But you should always question yourself, not God's word. You should always question yourself, not, God, not Jesus Christ. Do not forget our temporal nature. But also do not forget where our stability comes from. The scriptures, not the teachings of a person, not the interpretations of a man. But we must be aware that there are some out there who are legitimate false teachers that we ought to give no credit to. They might say good things because I've heard it said. I've heard it said nicely. Discernment is not differentiating between wrong and right. <clears throat> That's easy. Discernment is is uh, making it a distinction between right and almost right. See the difference there? Because something that's starkly wrong is easy to distinguish something that's starkly right. But it's far harder to distinguish between right and almost right. I've watched a lot of these televangelists, and they say a ton of good stuff. They've challenged my faith at times. But there's that mixture in there of the temporal quality of their, nat- of their teaching. I'm not going to name names, but just be aware. I'm going to give you some advice here. Just from how I've listened to teachers and what what Paul was just telling Timothy. And let me just read Colossians 3 real quick, just as as a precursor to what I'm about to say. Colossians chapter 3, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let me just stop there for the sake of time. A lot of people who are false teachers will try to get your mind to be set on the things down here. You need to name and claim that car, that money, that promotion, that house. And God will give it to you. Now send me a thousand dollars and I'll bless you. But when they proclaim the truth, they'll say a lot of true things. They'll quote scripture better than I can quote scripture. But then the application is all about you gaining more for yourself in this life. That is a misrepresentation of the priorities of God. And they get a lot of money from it. Because people want that stuff. People naturally, I need that car. I want that car. I want a better house. I want a better life for myself. I want more money. So I'm going to sow the seed so it'll grow into more money. I'm going to sow the seed by sending this televangelist $500. And he promised, in time, it'll turn into $50,000. i am sowing seeds for life. For the temporal. For the stuff that God does not prioritize. God may give you lots of money, but you can bet all of it on the fact that he's not giving it to you because he cares that your 80, 90, 100 years here are far more comfortable than somebody else's. He's giving it to you in some way or another for the sake of his kingdom, not your own. A false teacher, their teaching help you be satisfied in your own will, in your own kingdom, in your own century of life. And they distract you from the eternal. They distract you from what's coming. What's going to be yours for all of eternity. And they set your mind upon things that die. Things that fade. Whether it's money, covetousness. Whether it's lusts. Whether it's your passions. Something to do with any of those things. These come from the falseness of false teachers. I mean, just tied up in the nature of the, the description that Jesus gives them, ravenous wolves. What causes a wolf to be ravenous? It's natural passions. It's natural appetites. That's what causes a wolf to be ravenous. So if you're, te- if you're hearing teaching that is um, 
focused on some element of your natural appetites. That's teaching that may be using truth in God's scripture, but it's altering it to tickle your ears, to tell you what you want to hear so they can get something out of you. And I want, to add, I want to add this one last thing here. I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up, but I think it would be good for us to see. Did you know that God has a plan? That God has a use for false teachers? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. False teachers do not teach the truth, but God still has use for them. Isn't that kind of interesting? Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 says... If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer or dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. Now in Deuteronomy 16 he describes how to determine whether or not a prophet is a true prophet or not. And in that passage, he says, if what that prophet is prophesying comes to pass, then they're a true prophet. If it does not come to pass, then they're a false prophet. But here he's saying, God will actually cause some of these false prophecies to come to pass. For a reason. What was his reason? Did you catch it? To test you test you. He's going to make it look like they're legitimate to test you. Because did you know that some of these miracle workers, false prophets, whatever, sometimes people sow $5 and get $500,000. Some of it happens. Some people are actually healed. It happens. But does that, does that legitimize the falseness of that person? You know, here he's saying sometimes these things, this person will actually look like a real prophet. But he's testing you. He's testing the elect of God. To see if you will still walk after the Lord. If you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You will walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Because what's the nature of the false prophet? They actually lead you away from the Lord. They take your focus off of God by actually using God so that you can seek the temporal things. That person is to be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. So the nature of what a false prophet is teaching you causes you to look at the temporal rather than the eternal. It causes you to look at yourself or the prophet rather than God. Now, some of that's man's fault. Sometimes, you know, we like an idol, don't we? We like our, we like our, um, we like the famous preachers. There's nothing wrong with being a famous preacher. Some people, preachers are famous simply because they've had a huge impact in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But you and I need to be careful not to idolize people. I mean, we have responsibility here, too. Not to, distract our, not to be distracted by what's in front of us and to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. To keep our eyes on the word of God rather than giving glory that is not due man to man. False teachers, they want your glory. They try to get your glory. There are other people who get glory from people not because they're seeking it, but because we want to give glory to people sometimes. But we must be understanding here Sometimes somebody will come to you very convincingly and they will actually do a sign and a wonder. And a lot of people are, are taken astray by that. Well, I saw it happen right in front of my eyes. They must be the real deal. Even though, it's con even though what they're teaching or doing might be contrary to Scripture. 
Sometimes the Lord is actually using that. He's actually in that. To test us. To see if we will still remain true to the truth of God's word. So even if we see real miracles being done, that does not necessarily legitimize a person. If they are doing things and teaching things that are contrary to the scriptures, the clear teaching of scripture, then that's simply being a test to see if you will follow them, to, see, to follow after what you see, to follow after the passions of your flesh and what pleases our ears and our eyes. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are all tethers that people that false teachers will try to tie you to. They use those things to get you, to get your money, to get whatever they want. Or, on the positive side, is this teacher preaching the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that are convenient for his pocketbook, or is he teaching the whole counsel of God striving to live it, striving to follow it in the fear of God, though he might be mistaken and in some things, it's not somebody that should be completely and utterly rejected. Most of the famous preachers that you and I could name, we won't agree wholeheartedly with everything that they say. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean they're a false teacher. That doesn't mean we should completely disregard them because they are being used by God and they, are, they fear God. They are magnifying Jesus Christ. And we ought to praise Jesus Christ because of it. Even though they may not hold to every single thing that we hold to, they can still be good for your faith, for your uplifting, for the building of the body of Christ. So according to Jesus, Jesus is, by his grace, by his love, in Matthew chapter 7, he is teaching us, warning us, there are going to be coming people who are teaching falsehood. False teachers are going to come. Here's how you can stay on the narrow path. The path that is difficult, the path that not a whole lot of people are walking. This is the path that you must trod. And we must not be led astray by false prophets who are teaching us that it's okay to kind of broaden that path, to make that gate bigger, to make it easier, to make it more satisfying. These false prophets are going to say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They're going to say, you are walking the way to eternal life. You are walking in truth by walking on the broad path. That's what essentially what a false teacher is doing here when, you're, when we bring it back to Christ's teaching. They are saying, no, you can have eternal life and prosperous ease. Even though that's exactly what Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for, according to Ezekiel. They were rich, they had prosperous ease, and they did not aid the poor and needy. That's why the Bible says Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. But you can have all of this prosperous ease and live life for yourself and have eternal life too. But that's contrary to what Jesus said. It says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. The way to life includes a lot of self-emptying. It includes a lot of aiding the poor and needy. Contrary to what Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for. It includes a lot of self-emptying. It includes a lot of emptying of the paycheck. Okay? I'm not asking you to give it to me. I'm asking you to give it to the poor and needy. It includes a lot of the emptying of the will to see somebody else benefited. It includes a lot of difficulty that not everybody is willing to endure for the sake of Christ. So let us not be deceived as a church. As we listen, we should be listening to other teachers. We should be listening to YouTube, other preachers. We should be getting nourishment from, from other books, from, other author from authors. But we must be aware. Is this person's teaching <clears throat> trying to fuse the way of life with the broad and the easy way? 
Or is he actually teaching the scriptures, what Jesus actually taught? It's an interesting study if you want to look into this on your own, but when you're reading the apostles' writings, (coughs) Paul, Peter, (coughs) excuse me, John, etc., it's amazing to see how everything that they say actually can be tied to something that Jesus said. It really just expands upon what Jesus has already told, told us in his word. They aren't really adding new stuff. They're just expanding what Jesus already said. It's kind of interesting. Just when you're reading through the apostles' works, just think about that. When they say this, try to think where in Jesus' teaching could that be tied to? You'll find an answer every single time. It's pretty interesting. But we come back to the cornerstone. We come back to the solid ground upon which we can be built on Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that passage more next week. But I'm going to pray. We'll be dismissed to lunch. Um, Please take some of this with you as you try to discern truth from error. Truth is eternal. Error is founded in the temporal. That can be your rule of thumb, I suppose. Thank you, Lord. For caring enough to protect us, to protect your people as we are your children and as a, as a parent tries to protect his children and see that their children, are, is nour- their children are nourished, so you do for us. You protect us, you nourish us, you want us to be fed properly. You keep us from those you know will cause us harm. And Lord, by your spirit, I know that you will give us discernment to see the truth. For you care for your elect. And you preserve us according to your grace. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.